Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savile that's prepared to face pretty much any hardship to bring you the most interesting stories in the property world. And today we're wrapping up warm, putting on our snow boots and heading to the mountains to take a look at Savile's annual ski report. The increase in snowfall has been quite prevalent in the last two years, as well as the season length, but not complacent. And that's why the ski lift operators, of course, are investing in infrastructure to try and allay any downside to global warming. And we'll be looking at where's up and where's down in the annual resilience index. The top six resorts have remained the top six resorts for the last three years. But actually, if you look slightly lower down the rankings, there have been some quite big movers in there. I'm Guy Ruddle, and with me today in the studio, sadly, because we'd like to be on the slopes, but we can't, are Sophie Chick, who's Head of World Research at Savills. Welcome back, Sophie. Thank you. Hello. And the man who I still maintain has got the best job in the world, Jeremy Rollison, who is head of Savile Ski. How are you? I'm well indeed. Good afternoon, Guy. Are you preparing yourself for, for months travelling around the Alps and other ski resorts? I've, I look forward to the season every year and it, it's, it doesn't get any worse. Yeah. Do, you, do you spend a lot of the, of the, of the sort of you know, Northern Hemisphere ski season actually in the Alps or America or the Rockies or, or wherever? I would I'd love to do more work in, the North, in North, North America, but 99% of our work at the moment is in the, is in the Alps. And so what's the, what's the sort of situation overall with the market? Are, 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 are ski numbers going up all over the world or down? Or, or is, it, is it a healthy industry or, or what? Ski numbers have in fact gone up in the last 12 months, year on year. So compared to the previous year, they're up by about 6% from 330 million worldwide to 350 million worldwide, which is great news for us and it's a great story. And Sophie, is that a sort of consistent across different parts of the world and different ages? groups and all that sort of stuff so that's the global stat and i think what's really important to note is that's the second year in a row that we've seen those ski numbers go up that was following three years where actual actually the ski numbers were falling um so this is a good turnaround for the ski industry a part of that increase has been driven by a bigger share of um, skiers coming from China, for example, more take-up of skiing there. But actually, it's not just worldwide where the skiing numbers increased. If you have a look just at the Alps, the skiing numbers are also up. So it's uh, it's positive all over the globe. And when you when you say China, is that Chinese people skiing in China or are there lots of them it's heading both, our way? It's both. So you're seeing a bigger increase of people skiing in China and there's a lot of focus on that as well. But also... They're more interested in skiing elsewhere. So Japan is a market for them, but also the Alps. Because if you were a bear of very little brain, rather like me, uh, your instinct would be global warming, bad for skiing, not a great scenario. Well, I think that's a very logical conclusion to come to. And what we've seen over the last few years is some a mild increase in temperatures which has which does two things it has the effect potentially of shortening the season and limiting snowfall but the increase in uh, snowfall has been quite prevalent in the last two years as well as the season length so we've seen a little bit of a counter to that but not complacent and that's why the ski lift operators of course are investing in infrastructure to try and uh, allay any uh, downside to global warming yeah. Go on. Were you going? Well, essentially, what that means is that uh, although seemingly global increase in temperatures might mean that we're just skiing, we're not skiing at Easter, for example, uh, provided that we have 
temperatures below minus minus two minus three they can run the snow cannons and and actually in the two previous years prior to prior to 27 2018 the problem wasn't so much temperatures it was simply we had anti-cyclonic conditions and no precipitation and the west coast of america hogged all the snow so what we've seen is the change in perhaps the uh, the the pattern of the jet stream so you on the one hand you have north america getting heavy snowfalls and cool temperatures and then the the rest of the Alps getting rather changeable conditions. So the last two years has been a change of that, where the Alps have hogged all the snow and poor North America have been left wanting. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Do you talk about anticyclonic conditions much when you're uh, in your world research role, uh, Sophie? No, <laughs> I didn't think you would do. Yeah. So how important then is the way we ski you know what the the yeah is that changing do, do we still go for i don't know stay in a hotel or a chalet for a week and or uh, and do it the way we always used to or is that changing as well uh, I think we have seen a rise in the number of people looking for weekend ski breaks, um, particularly if you're looking at the Alps, really accessible, um, and people will do that. But the week holiday is still popular as well. Yeah. So if we're in this situation where, the you know, it is... Let, let me say fragile. I don't know whether are, are you okay with that. That you know, the the, market, the the industry is slightly more fragile, as you say. We could end up with shorter seasons, or you know, you know, snow is not as reliable as it was twenty years ago. How important is it then that resorts, which are competing with each other, make the most of what they've got? Fundamental. Uh, the, the you have two seasons essentially in the Alps. Obviously, this, you have the winter season, which lasts from early mid December through to Easter. And Easter, depending, because can vary by three to four weeks. Uh, and but typically, a lot of the resorts would close anyway mid mid April, irrespective of whether April uh, Easter was any later. So you have the winter season, and that's typically say sixteen weeks, uh, where the hotels and the local businesses are are scrabbling and. Comp- to get every dime, shake every dime out of the skier's pocket. And then there is a, a shoulder season, which uh, takes through takes the, the operators through to the early summer, so mid-June, July. And, uh, but we, what we are seeing is a trend uh, towards a, a, a longer summer season. And, and that's because people have discovered the Alps in the summer and, and the hotels are opening longer and there are more events taking place during the summer months in the ski resorts and these are big events international events sometimes such as music con- music classical music concerts and e-bike festivals which uh, we're seeing emerge uh, triathlons it's, you, it's no longer uh, good enough just to be a marathon runner it's triathlons and so on Let's talk about uh, the resilience index because this is you know, the, this is a uniquely Savills thing. Uh, it's been going for three years now, so we're, I, I guess Sophie, we're starting to be in a situation where we can look at what's happening to resorts going up and down the resilience thing. Can you just quickly remind us of what the resilience index is? Yes, definitely. So we started this three years ago and we look at a number of factors. We look at snowfall, we look at temperature, we look at season length and we look at resort altitude. And there's a couple of other factors in there as well. And we bring this all together to give an overall ranking of the resort's resilience in terms of climate change. And presumably, if you're thinking of buying a chalet or to either to own, you know, op- occupy yourself or to rent out or whatever the resilience is an important of the resort you're buying is an important factor right definitely and we're seeing 
people, clients, the press, all wanting to know what the results are of our resilience index. And I think what's really interesting is actually over the three years that we've been doing it, the top six resorts have remained the top six resorts. But actually, if you look slightly lower down the rankings, there have been some quite big movers in there. So for example, Andermatt has gone from 45th place two years ago to seventh place this year. And that's predominantly driven by an increase in snowfall. Jeremy, what are the top six? The top six are in the following order. Zermatt (laughs) with the Matterhorn, Sasfe, which of course is very close to Zermatt, Um, uh, Chavinia, and then going to North America, Vale and Aspen, fourth and fifth, and then back into Europe, we have Obertown, which is the highest resort in Austria. Is that right? Mm. Oh, okay. Mm. So the, I, I'm slightly surprised by that. As a sort of somebody who spent a lot of time skiing over years and watching it, I imagine that that the um, the resorts in the Rockies would would be more resilient because they always seem to have. I mean, I know you were saying earlier that they haven't for the last couple of years, but they always seem to get better so that's But actually, Zermatt is the place to the place to be, right? It has it has an outstanding record for not just snowfall, but it has the altitude. Um, you can ski up to a, you know a huge three thousand eight hundred meters on the Klein Matterhorn, and and it has the season length as well. So uh, if you speak to anyone in Switzerland, they're green with envy when it comes to Zermatt because not only have they, they, the resort itself is at eighteen hundred and fifty meters, which seems to be you know the new standard. That's what people are looking for. They want they don't necessarily think about the ability to access high high mountain skiing uh, if you take some of the french resorts like morzine and chamonix which sit around a thousand meters that's no longer good enough for people they want white snow through the resort as well as the ability to ski high into a high altitude mountain environment so zermatt ticks all those boxes anyone falling substantially down the index that we should uh, that we should know about sophie so Trissel and norway um has fallen the most places um And part of that is because they've got, the seasons have got warmer, there's been less snowfall. So let's talk a little bit then about uh, places to buy. Um, You know, it's the obvious question, but what are the, what are the, what's the most expensive place to buy, say, I don't know, does it matter what type of property it is? Let's, let's imagine a sort of four, five, six bedroom chalet, because that's what we're all going to buy. What? What's the most expensive place to buy one of those? Well, in Europe, it's Courcheval uh, by by some margin. So the average price for super prime property per square meter, according to our research, is now over thirty three thousand euros per square meter. But if you take the index as a whole, Aspen is way out there at well over forty thousand euros a square meter, the equivalent currency. So Aspen still tops our super prime league. But uh, other than Courcheval, you have in the top five or six, you have Vale. You have Val d'Isère rapidly catching up, which has seen some enormous price growth over the last five years, driven by domestic sentiment, by lack of supply, and that all-important altitude, which is what is what is driving the market there. So it's not, Sophie, automatically linked to the resilience of a resort. There are obviously other factors, as, as, as Jeremy said, sentiment and fashion and things like that. Definitely. And I think what we're seeing is investors having a look at both the resilience index and where their price point is and, and choose it because there's so many other factors that go into choosing where they want to buy. Um, I think what's also really interesting in pricing is that actually over the last year, we've seen the prices of prime properties and ski resorts 
on the whole increase if we look across the Alps um, and actually slightly outperforming the mainstream market. So the higher value properties seeing bigger increases and that's partly due to supply. Um, supply is critical when you look at any housing market, um, exactly the same here. Um, and also depending on sort of how much investment's gone into a resort and all these other factors. And rental's important, isn't it? I mean, not just for people who want to buy as an investment and rent it out anyway, but if you're buying, you may want to rent it out a bit, to, you know, so it washes its face or whatever. Is there a big difference between you know, the best place to, to own and the best place to own to rent? I think it depends what you're looking for. So if you're picking up on what Jeremy said earlier, if you're looking to get rents all year round, you'll be looking for those resorts with the summer season that's well established. You'll be able to make an income throughout the year rather than just in the ski resort. Um, Whereas if you're buying purely for the skiing, perhaps that won't be a factor. Yeah. Jeremy, what are are your thoughts? Well, the logic would suggest that if you're buying a second home, you you can afford it and therefore you wouldn't need to necessarily rent it out. Um, But actually, as Sophie says, people are chasing yield. And ironically, they're chasing yield at the top of the market as well as the lower end of the market. Um, And so they are the wealthy are actually taking mortgages to buy these assets because of the very cheap borrowing rates in Europe at the moment. They're less than 1% in Switzerland, for example, less than 1%, extraordinary. And so historically low, and even in France, you can borrow five-year money for less than 2%, sometimes 1.5%. And the very wealthy, of course, who have portfolios and other assets are using that money to get far better returns. So it makes perfect sense for them to borrow money against these assets. And particularly in France, where you have a property tax, uh, where there is also a fiscal benefit from taking a mortgage against the against the properties. So once they have this debt, they want to then look at offsetting it with some form of rental return. And does the does the price of a chalet uh, is that affected in the short term by snow conditions in a season? So you know, if you have a bad snow season, are prices a bit lower? at the end of that season and the beginning of the next one? It's a really good question, Guy. People have terribly short memories. Um, so it, I would say there's probably a 12, six to 12 months time lag. So if you've got a couple of, you had a couple of bad seasons, as Vila, for example, did in, in, in Switzerland in 2011. In fact, pretty much everywhere in the Alps had a bad season in 2011. But Vila was particularly badly affected, had virtually no snow. And it, it's taken probably five years for that market to recover. Um, but if we saw that happen, happening in other ski ski resorts and I think we might see a similar effect but luckily as I say people have short memories so um <laughs> but there is a window you know if if this season for instance I mean I'm not in the market myself I, unfortunately but if this season turns out to be a terrible season for snow in the Alps there's a window where you might be able to buy cheaply for six months or so after that is that is that what you're saying I think you might find demand falls away very slightly or people put a, put on hold their plans okay. to buy. But generally speaking, uh, as I've said um, fairly often now, it would take many seasons re- repeatedly and, co- and successively for there to be no snow for people to stop buying in the Alps. As a resort, what does a place need to do to make sure that it's attractive, not this season, but in, say, seven, eight seasons' time? Well, the, for me, Guy, the, the resort needs to function at all levels. So it needs to function at the town level. It needs to be able to draw clients in. So that means a nice hotel and accommodation offering, not 
not old 1970s style hotels. They need to be Wi-Fi compatible. They have to have comfortable accommodation. They've got to have good F&B offerings. So that's the accommodation sorted. Once you have that, then you need to have some in-resort facilities. So nightclubs, bars, good restaurants, somewhere for the kids when you're when you're skiing or heli skiing, for example, somewhere to drop the kids off for the day. And then, of course, he lives up, in a different world to us, doesn't <laughs> he? Up the mountain, I wish. <laughs> I wish. Then up the mountain, people want, they don't want to queue. And so you've spent good money on your ski pass. You want to go straight to the top of the mountain. And you want that same experience, in resort experience, up the mountain as well. So you want to be able to go to a nice restaurant for lunch, have a glass of wine, and ski back without having to queue for 20 minutes at each lift. And I would just pick up on that. Um, you mentioned internet access. And actually, we've done a survey recently with HomeAway about second homeowners. And not only across all second homeowners, but also within the ski market, the number one amenity that people want is internet access. So it's the number one factor that they consider when they're looking at where to buy. That's a great statistic, which leads me on to the Savile standout statistic, because you can't come waltzing in here to the Real Estate Insights studio uh, uh, without bringing a Savile standout statistic with you. This is a little nugget of something that just makes people go, oh, I didn't know that. So who wants to go first? Sophie, why don't you go first? So my statistics also based on this survey that I just mentioned, and it is that when you have a look at owners of ski properties, on average, they're renting out these ski properties for 19 weeks of the year. And then on top of that, the owner and friends or family of the owner are spending an additional six weeks in the property. So given that the average season length is about 20 weeks, actually, they're fairly full um, and fairly well rented when you compare, um, when you look over the length of the ski season. Jeremy, what's your Savile standout stat today? Well, I've actually got two, Guy. And the first... Of course you have. The first... Uh, we were talking about infrastructure earlier. And so in Austria, for example, where they have 60 primary ski resorts, during the last 10 years or so, during the last decade, every year, the lift operators have spent on average 130 million euros a year, which equates to two and a half million a week. So when you buy your lift pass, you realise actually there is an awful amount of money that goes into maintaining and improving lift infrastructure. And which leads me nicely into my second statistic, which of course helps our industry, our property industry, because on average across the Alps, we've seen prices increase in the last 12 months by between two and two and a half percent. Which is not bad, really, is it, given the sort of state of the market and the world generally. Guys, thank you both very much for that. It's uh, It's been fascinating. I think we all need to, now that, you know, Christmas is done and dusted, we all need to get our ski stuff out and head off to the Alps as soon as we possibly can. It's been lovely to see you both. That's it for Real Estate Insights uh, for this episode. If you want more information, and I promise you there is loads more information in the ski report, you'll find it on the research section of the Savills website, savills.co.uk forward slash research. And if you aren't a subscriber to Real Estate Insights and would like to become one, then you can do so using your usual podcast provider. And please do. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. 
This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.